And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. This weekend, one of the films being released to movie theaters across the country is 80 for Brady. The number 80 in the title refers to the four octogenarians who are in hot pursuit of their favorite football player, NFL quarterback Tom Brady, widely regarded as the greatest to ever play the game. By the way, Tom Brady, as you've probably heard, announced his retirement from football just a couple of days ago. The film stars a quartet of much-honored actresses, Lily Tomlin, Rita Moreno, Sally Field, and Jane Fonda. I thought in honor of the opening of this film, which, by the way, I have not yet seen, I thought it would be interesting to replay for you a morning show conversation which I recorded back in 2011 with Patricia Bosworth talking about her biography of her good friend, Jane Fonda. Here it is. We will be talking about a most fascinating woman, a talented woman, a controversial woman, Jane Fonda, and talking about a remarkably insightful new book about her called Jane Fonda, The Private Life of a Public Woman. The book is written by someone who has known Jane Fonda for a long, long time, Patricia Bosworth, who is a contributing editor to Vanity Fair magazine. And uh, she has known Jane Fonda uh, since the days when they were both uh, students at the uh, actor Studio in New York City. And uh, Bosworth is also well known for uh, biographies of other uh, important Hollywood figures like Marlon Brando and Montgomery Clift. Again, this uh, new biography... Uh, painstakingly researched and beautifully written is called Jane Fonda, The Private Life of a Public Woman, published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And Patricia Bosworth, we welcome you to the morning show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad to be talking to you. I wonder if, ahead of us talking about uh, Ms. Fonda and specifically this book, I wonder if you could just talk in general about uh, the challenges of writing about figures like Jane Fonda and Marlon Brando, and, and, and so on. Uh, I suspect for as exciting as that, those kind of projects must be, uh, they're probably fraught with all kinds of uh, particular challenges that uh, the rest of us probably don't begin to understand. Well, I'd, uh, with, with Jane, of course, I was very lucky. I had a huge advantage because I, I'd known her uh, since we were kids in our, in our early 20s at the Actors Studio. So I could get to her. I could literally get to her by calling her, or when I saw her at a party or something, I could go over and talk to her, which you can't do with every celebrity, you know? And so I, I, I did not have any problem uh, getting to Jane, uh, that, but the, the, the challenge was to try to figure out how to organize and kind of shape this, this epic life that she has lived. I mean, first of all, she has... It's really a cultural history, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to do it, was because I believe that she uh, reflects the decades by all of her amazing transformation, be it movie star, political activist, exercise guru, tycoon wife. Uh, each time she changed herself and reinvented herself, it, it happened to coincide with, with a different era, you know, whether it was the the Hollywood of the, the 60s uh, with the drugs and rock and roll and carrying on like that and into uh, the Vietnam War, uh, into the me decade. Anyway, uh, that, was, that was a challenge. Uh, it was difficult, but it was fascinating to do. And also, I, I had lived through it myself, you know. With, Brand, with somebody like Brando, a uh, funny story to tell about him, he, I could never reach Brando. I mean, Brando was, didn't want to talk. Uh, 
I, I was longing to talk to him, and I finally, some, somebody finally said, look, he won't answer your phone calls or your letters. Maybe if you fax a fax to his dog, uh, maybe you'll get some kind of an answer. So I literally wrote a fax to Fido, his dog, uh, said, dear Fido, I want to talk to your master. Please let me know if that's okay. And I sent the fax. And within seconds, the fax came back. My master does not want to talk to you ever sign Fido with a paw print. And of course that was Brando, because you know how eccentric and crazy he was. <laughs> that really did happen to me. Wow. <laughs> from the from the sublime to the ridiculous almost right. because I really have I got nothing but, but help from Jane and encouragement and she didn't put any restrictions on the book. She didn't ask to see the book. She didn't have approval of the text. Uh, although of course she by now she's read the book and I think she likes it. But but uh, I didn't have the usual problems that many biographers have with live subjects like Kitty Kelly with Oprah, who didn't want her to do the book, you know that kind of thing. Right. Uh, in in the case of Jane Fonda, uh, she actually initially did not want to speak with you. Uh, explain true. to our listeners why, and then oh, why sure. you think she changed her mind. Oh well, uh, yeah. Um, I'm 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 am getting was getting ahead of my story. No, what happened was I happened to start writing my book when she was in the midst of writing her memoir. It was a wonderful memoir, My Life So Far. And so at first she didn't want to talk to me because she, as she said, I don't want to give anything away. I don't want to give you stories that are stories that I, you know, particularly want to tell. And so for like three years, we talked very amicably back and forth on the phone or when I'd run into her, but she didn't want to sit down and really be interviewed. And then suddenly she changed her mind, as she often does. She's very contradictory. She asked me to come down to her ranch and spend a week there. Uh, ostensibly to help her look over her FBI files, which are extensive. You know, she was persecuted by Hoover. There were like 22,000 pages of them. And she wanted me, uh, it was a very serious request, really. Some reviewers have uh, kind of thought that she was taking advantage of me, which is absolutely ridiculous. She wanted another pair of eyes on this enormous amount of material and information. She was looking specifically for information about a a film that she'd made in North Vietnam about the bombing of the dikes. It had disappeared. She suspected the FBI or the CIA had stolen it. Uh, she thought maybe there'd be references to her film in the FBI files. That's what I was looking for, for her. But in any event, back to what you originally said, why she didn't want to speak to me originally. It's because she she didn't want to give anything away, and I understood that. And uh, But when we talked, as I had said, she... She wanted a woman to write a biography about her. She wanted a woman to write a definitive biography, which I hope I've done. And and um, we talked about the fact that no woman had ever written about her. There had been nine biographies, all by men. None of them had taken her seriously. Some of them, you know, uh, really were rather contemptuous and, and, and very superficial. She wanted a real, a real biography in depth by a woman, by somebody who she knew and could trust. She knows my work. And that's why she decided to. And, of course, I think there were, oddly enough, I don't think there was much that she didn't tell me after a while. But I explained to her what I wanted to do in terms of the cultural history, and this she liked a lot. So that's, that's how it happened. I wonder if you could also let us in on the what, what the sensation is of writing about somebody whom you also consider to be a friend. And... What I assume is is at least to to some extent a, a potentially awkward 
position oh, for you. Oh, absolutely. No, it's a very, a, a sort of a very delicate dance, you know, that the, the biographer does with his or her live subject. Of course, uh, I, I, I approached it with, with trepidation and concern, and because, of course, with a figure as enormous as Jane, I mean, she's a huge celebrity, very, very famous, has done many, many things in her life. Of course, there are things that are not flattering or not nice, uh, are ugly and awful. And what do I do about it? Do I, you know, tell everything? Uh, no, I don't. I mean, I use discretion. I, I selected but I do not believe that my uh, my book is is they call it, is it a hagiography. You know, it's not a puff piece. It's a serious biography. I took her very seriously. What I tried to do in situations where she uh, perhaps uh, acted ruthlessly. I mean, she's a very powerful woman. Uh, she treated people badly. I did tell some of those stories, but I think I t- I balanced them with the, the terrific. St- and wonderful stuff that she's done in her life, but she's a human being, you know. So, yes, I did choose to tell certain stories that perhaps uh, even Jane didn't want me to tell, although she's never said anything to me about it. But I chose, all I can say is I I selected very carefully. I chose, for example, she fired her lawyer. Uh, I I told that story in in toto. Um, But I also balanced it with... Other stories that, as I say, show her generosity, her her love of people, her concern. She's, she, as I say, she's you know a complicated, contradictory uh, human being. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't know whether I've answered the question, but it is it is very difficult. You have to figure out what to what to leave in and what to take out. Uh, and I I did weigh these these things very very carefully. Absolutely, and what you I mean ultimately what that answer boils down to is uh, you are you are her friend, and you I are am. also wanting to write a fascinating revelatory book for the rest of us. Right. I wanted to re- I wanted to reveal her in all her her, her facets, uh, good and bad. And, and as I say, she's she's very very human, and she's had this unbelievably remarkable life where she's achieved so much. And, you know, the book really is a book about a woman struggling to be acknowledged and affirmed and loved. And that that's really the story of her life. Uh, it's the story of a woman just longing to be acknowledged. And, and, uh, and she had such a hard time with her father, who would not give her love or openly, although I think Henry Fonda did care for her very, very much. I do. But it was hard for him to show it. <laughs> We're speaking with Patricia Bosworth, and we are talking about uh, the book that has just been published called Jane Fonda, The Private Life of a Public Woman, uh, a, a lovingly crafted and painstakingly uh, crafted b- book about uh, this fascinating woman. You've just touched on uh, one matter that's of such importance to Jane Fonda and much of the uh, vulnerability and insecurities that uh, that have plagued her for much of her life and that is the the relationship she had with her father Henry Fonda and of course with her mother as well oh, uh, yes. let's begin first with Henry Fonda uh, what an interesting figure he is oh, and in boy. some respects uh, rather uh, c- uh, contradictory he to his stage persona yes. yeah tell us more about him well, you know Henry Fonda, of course, was one of the one of the great actors uh, in Hollywood who did 
movies like Grapes of Wrath and Abe Lincoln and Twelve Angry Men. I mean, many, many, many movies. I, I think everybody still remembers him. He was one of the greats, along with Gary Cooper and Clark Gable, in those days, the 30s, 40s, 50s. 60s. I mean, he worked till he died. I think he made about 90 movies altogether. He, too, was a workaholic, by the way, like like Jane. Um, but he was a very mysterious man. Nobody could figure him out. I mean, on screen, he played heroes, wonderful men, warm, loving men. In person, he was cold and detached. He was also, uh, oddly enough, or maybe not so oddly, he was a great womanizer. That was something I found out when I was researching. He had five wives, and two of them were, talked to me. They all talked to me, but except for the ones that had died, of course. But uh, two of his wives uh, admitted to me that he was enormously attractive and irresistible to women and, and had been a womanizer throughout his life, which I had not known. It was just sort of a little interesting detail. Um, but the whole business of his manner in person, cold, detached, shy, didn't like to talk at all, uh, certainly didn't like to talk about himself, and uh, seemed irritated much of the time when people would, would talk to him. He, he was not an easy man to be with ever, unless he had a couple of drinks. And as Jane used to say, he loved to talk to strangers on planes. That's when he could really loosen up. Mm. He couldn't. He couldn't it at home ever. Wow. And he, he was also a taskmaster, and a very, very strict father with both Jane and Peter. Hmm. You tell us that he, in fact, I think you've already mentioned it. The fact that it was not easy for him to uh, verbalize affection. Uh, nor to even really demonstrate overt emotion. In, in, in some way, he seems to have seen it as a weakness. He also, however, uh, apparently told a biographer that, uh, that, uh, that Jane's mother insisted he wear a mask and not physically touch her too much when she was first a newborn, something that he regretted and in some ways is kind of a metaphor for the distance that uh, oh, seemed yeah, to exist yeah. there from there on. That that's true. I mean, I think you know, I have this scene at the very beginning of the book when Jane is born, and he comes in and he takes wonderful takes pictures of her, trying to take pictures of her. But most of the time, uh, uh, she's sort of being taken care of by by the nurse in the hospital. Uh, the mother does not. Francis did not want want to really had not wanted a daughter for her her uh, for the child she wanted a son and and she even spoke about that it was a very sort of difficult way of of finding out about your when you were born jane found that out very early on but anyway yes she did he did have to wear a mask for sanitary reasons uh health reasons at home uh even when jane was a little baby so uh that that was very hard on her right and and in some ways it's a it, it stands as a metaphor it for like the, metaphor, the distance absolutely. between, yes. Uh, tell us about her name. This is one of many things oh. I learned in your in your book about oh. Jane Fonda. I did not know this about why she was named as she was. Oh, you mean Lady Jane or J-A-Y-N-E? Right. Oh, uh, dear. Yeah. Uh, well, her, her mother maintained that she was of, uh, you know... Of, of royalty, of English royalty, uh, that she was named after Lady Jane Seymour, who was one of the wives of uh, one of the King Henrys in in the, I guess, the 16th century. I, I'm really not sure whether this is true, but it, it, it's why Henry Fonda was so impressed with Francis Fonda's telling of this story about her historical, you know, uh, lineage that he decided that Jane should be called Lady Jane, and she was until she was about about eight years old, and, and then she just re resisted being called Lady Jane. She thought it was ridiculous. 
but that that's the story anyway. Interesting. At some point early in the book, I think you say something about how Jane Fonda has had to construct her own narrative about mm-hmm. in in order to to sort out who she is and why she is who she is. And right. and I and and of course this is particularly important when it comes to her father and her mother and we'll speak in a moment about ultimately what uh, becomes of her mother and and how that marks Jane for the rest of her life. But I wonder if you could just say a quick word about that, because, of course, when one constructs a narrative about one's life, one can do that honestly or dishonestly. What is your impression of Jane Fonda's, in a sense, self-created narrative of of Uh, her life? That's a very interesting point, and actually her brother Peter uh, Fonda, who is uh, a, a remarkable character in his own right, he advised me, I talked to him at, law, at great length, he advised me to, yes, listen to Jane's version of her life, but to know that there were many other versions, and to find those versions out. Only then would I have kind of more of a complete picture. And I'll just give you an example, one example. Jane and I, I did get this, this different version of her life. In her, in her own book, she gives two lines to a man named Andreas Vutsinas, who was her lover, mentor, kind of coach, acting coach, for many years. They, they lived together, etc., uh, for a long time, and then remained friends for almost over a decade. Anyway, at the early part of her career, Jane gives Andreas two lines in her book. She just, just cuts him out of her life. Hmm. And this particular period in her life was hugely important. Uh, I knew Andreas at the actor's studio. He's an eccentric, colorful character who was indeed a great acting coach. Um, I asked Jane. I knew that she she had broken with him and was very bitter about her time with him. He was a very controlling man, and I, and I think at that point in her life, she really didn't know who she was. So she allowed him kind of to shape and control her life, and then resented it. But anyway. I said, look, I really want to talk to Andreas. You know, we all knew him at the studio. Is it okay? And she had never allowed Andreas to talk to anybody. He'd never been interviewed. And uh, she said, oh, yeah, you can. I don't, I don't really want to talk about him or see him or anything, but, but uh, you can. And with that, I was able to go to Paris and to Greece and spent weeks with him, piecing together, which is probably the, the entire uh second and third part of my book. I mean, he knew her so well in every situation. When she was bulimic, he helped her try to get over the bulimia. He coached her all of her early movie roles. They kept in constant touch, even when she was married to Vadim. They corresponded. He showed me her letters. But I, I told Jane that I was seeing him. It's very interesting. When he died last year, she was very upset. I emailed her and told her, about his end. He, she never wanted to see him. But anyway, that's one of the things that uh, it's not that she made anything up. She just left it out. She left this part of her life out. And I was able to piece that part of her life together. Interesting. Her mother commits suicide when Jane is just 12 years old. I, I wonder if you, after all these years, can just can, can offer insight on how that has marked Jane Fonda uh, to the present day? Well, I think, I mean, she herself says that it was the defining incident in her life. Uh, She's been haunted by it her entire life. I mean, for starters, she was not told the truth about how her mother 
killed herself. Her mother committed suicide by slitting her throat in a mental institution when Jane was 12. And she was a very emotionally sort of unhinged by that time, Mrs. Fonda, because Henry Fonda had left her. He was going to marry another woman. She felt totally alone and adrift. And in any event, Mrs. Fonda committed suicide. And both Jane and Peter were told that their mother had died of a heart attack. And uh, Jane it was just in a state of numbness, didn't accepted that, only to read the truth about her mother's terrible death in a movie magazine. And uh, again, she couldn't go to her father. She wanted to go to her father. She always wanted to go to her father to talk to him about about this terrible, terrible thing that had happened. Uh, but she was afraid. Uh, she She and her father never talked about it. He met, would mention to, sometimes to reporters, yes, he admitted he had lied to his kids, but he felt they were too young to know the truth. But in any event, both Peter and Jane grew up under this terrible cloud. Peter didn't find out about it till later because Jane didn't tell her brother, so her brother didn't know until he was about, I think, 14 or 15. He learned about it when they were in Rome, again, by chance. But how did it affect her? Well, suicide survivors are a special breed of a person they uh they're workaholics they work like crazy they're tremendous overachievers and they're caretakers um jane is both in spades i mean she's uh, an amazing i mean she works like a dog uh, manically uh, ambitious all this has to do with with the suicide yeah. i believe right you uh one of the most poignant things about that that experience is uh, you describe this uh, moment when she gets home, runs up the stairs, plops down on her canopy bed, waiting, hoping, expecting a huge emotion to engulf her, tears, screams, something, but she felt anesthetized, numb. How weird, she thought, I'm never going to see my mother again, and I can't cry. No, she could not cry for years, uh, literally years. I mean, of course she was able to cry uh, when she was playing parts in the movies, and maybe, you know, that was some kind of a release. But no, she she couldn't cry for her mother for a long, long time. I think she was helped a lot by her stepmother, one of her stepmothers, Susan Blanchard, who was a marvelously warm, loving woman, who just said, look, it's okay, you know. Um, it's buried deep inside you, but... Maybe eventually uh, it, it will it will start to come out. It has, but it's taken years. It's like her emotions have been sort of buried under an iceberg, you know. And I think a psychiatrist once told her it, 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 it maybe that the, the iceberg will melt a tiny bit, but it's going to take a long, long time. She's buried this huge, huge amount of grief inside herself. She, and also, she was in denial in a way. I mean. Uh, it, it's a very complicated and, and awful situation for uh, suicide survivors, you know? Absolutely. I mean, uh, and not just when you're as famous as Jane Fonda. It's, it's, it's a pain anybody in that situation bears. And, of course, she, in a sense, bears that pain uh, squarely in the spotlight. Oh, absolutely. And I think for many, many years, she never, never, never talked about it in public. I think it took her... I think it was like in maybe in the 80s when she talked to a journalist about it. I mean, everybody knew that the record stated that her mother committed suicide, but she did, never wanted to talk about it in public. Hmm. And now, of course, she does, but 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 um, carefully and uh, I think still with pain. I think she's finally 
not only healed in many ways, but I think she really loves her mother now. And I don't, I think she was very angry at her mother for a long, long time for many reasons, one of which was that Peter was supposedly her, her favorite, Peter, her, her brother, her son, Mrs. Fonda's son. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's very complicated mm. and very, very sad. We're speaking with Patricia Bosworth about her new book, Jane Fonda, The Private Life of a Public Woman. Uh, all of this is captured in part one of the book, Part two of the book is called Simply Actress. And it's interesting because uh, the years that this section of the book covers are, are relatively slim, 1958 to 1963. And, of course, these are not the only years that she is an actress, but these are those very important years in which she becomes an actress. That's and, right. That's and, of right. course, and she... go ahead. Oh, just just that that she got into the the actor studio, and that's when I knew her, and we were in class, and we knew the same people, and went out for coffee together, and I watched her grow and develop not only in at the studio, but uh, in Lee Strasberg's private classes, where she did a wild variety of 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 kind of you know sensory and emotional exercises, including uh, a so-called sense memory about her bulimia. Uh, this is another thing that I found fascinating about her, that she acted out many of her torments. She acted out, reenacted her mother's suicide at, a, at her final audition at the actor's studio uh, and then had no memory of it afterwards. She totally improvised this ghastly, uh, almost act of, of, of killing herself with, a, with a, a razor, which is what her mother did. Uh, Jane broke a, a wine glass during this audition and then lifted the shard of glass to her throat seemed about to slit her throat, and Andreas, who did the scene with her, uh, struggled with her, and uh, uh, the scene was over. She passed her audition, of course, and the ne- but the next day she had no memory that she'd done this, mm. which I think is... I-, I do understand this. I know it sounds very extreme, but uh, this actually happened. Uh, I think one of the things that's truly remarkable about this moment in her life is that uh, I mean, a lot of people, when they uh, first seek the, the possibility of becoming an, a, a, an actor on the stage, uh, it, it, it can be a, a tremendously humbling experience, uh, especially when the doors of the world don't open easily and quickly to you. Uh, in, in the case of Jane Fonda, although it's not that she didn't have some struggles, but by and large, this was an enormously positive experience for her, and the first genuine affirmation she feels like she ever received in her whole life. That's right. She describes doing sort of a sensory exercise of drinking a glass, an imaginary glass of orange juice, and Lee Strasberg telling her how great it was and and that he... he really believed in her talent, and she was just over the moon about it. Nobody had ever praised her like this before, and this really uh, made her very, very happy for the first time in her life, maybe. Totally happy that somebody had affirmed her, you know? Uh, it's wild. It's, <laughs> it's interesting to read about uh, some of the uh, extraordinary people, great, great talents, uh, whom really the two of you encountered in, in your time at the Actors Studio. But I'm fascinated that of everybody, it seems that Jane Fonda held in especially high esteem an actress that I think most of us would never think of in the same sentence with Jane Fonda, and that is Geraldine Page. Of course, many oh. of us only know Geraldine Page from some of her later roles, such as in uh, A Trip to Bountiful. A Trip to Bountiful, and, 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 the Academy and, Award. Right, yeah. and a role like that just seems just 
poles apart, another universe away from the kind of roles that Jane Fonda typically has played. I mean, I just, I would never think of those two in the same sentence. And yet Jane Fonda admired her above anybody else whose work she saw in the actor's studio. Well, I think because Jerry, Geraldine Page and Kim Stanley uh, and Bancroft, I think, was another one. These three and amazingly powerful actresses, they were all so full emotionally, and they they also lived life to the hilt. Uh, you know, Jerry was married to Rip Torn. She had twins. Uh, she She was an amazing woman on her own. Uh, in person, but on the stage, she she was so real and so genuine, uh, and just trembling with emotion. And we we used to watch her in class, working on. Well, she did. I remember she did Electra in class, uh, and Kazan was there. Leah Kazan was there, and uh, on the basis of that amazing performance, he cast her in Sweet Bird of Youth. Uh, it was just it was was her per, was her persona. She was also a a terrific woman, a nice person, uh, warm, very genuine. I think Jane always related to genuine people, uh, genuine personalities, because she herself had, at that point, you know, a facade. And, mm. and, and uh, I think she was always sort of trying to figure out, how do you, how, how do you become real? I remember once she said to me, T- tell me, uh, explain me to myself. She said <laughs> once, I said, I can't do that. Uh. I'm going to try, but... Uh, you know, she was all all tied up in knots at that point. Right. In fact, that's interesting. Some of the most interesting insight you shed about uh, the the actor's studio is is some of what Strasberg had to say about tension. You write at one point, Strasberg kept repeating that tension was the occupational disease of the actor. He emphasized the actor's individuality and the exploration of that individuality. He did not place a high value on versatility. No. Instead, he stressed penetrating the talent. The artist's courage lies in his or her ability to plunge into these recesses and confront his or her most secret self. Now, when we think about some of what we've already said about Jane Fonda and who she is, this had to have been extraordinary for her. Oh, of course it was. And she indeed did start to uh, delve into her mo- most secret selves with the emotional memory exercises that Lee wanted her to do. And when she began acting, for example, I- even in her first movie, which she didn't, she doesn't like herself in Tall Story. She's wonderful. She's just very re- relaxed and natural. But this is what she would, was learning at the actor's studio, just to reveal her herself, whatever that self was. And of course, she has many selves. So ultimately, she was able to tap into these uh, variances in her persona. I think, like with Brie, you know, the call girl in Clute, which I think is is her greatest performance. She tapped into herself, you know, and and to these various facets of herself. Yes, absolutely. Yes. It's very exciting, I think, when you think about it, isn't it? <laughs> yes. One of the things you say about Tall Story, again, her first film, is that. Her father's instruction to her, advice to her, was to do nothing in front of the camera. And uh, that, had, you tell it's us, kind of lulled her into thinking that it would all be easy. In fact, that first film especially was overwhelming to her, all that was involved in oh, the filming. Oh, yeah, and of she, a... didn't, she didn't know how to work in front of the camera. And Tony Perkins, who was her co-star, you know, sort of explained her how to work, work with the lights and to, again, not do anything. Uh, the camera picks up everything. 
I mean, if you can, if you watch Jane today just on on television, I mean, she's she's truly uh, remarkable as a as a performer, as a persona. I mean, she's just there, you know. But she she doesn't really do, she doesn't seem to be doing anything. But of course, she is. Mm-hmm. The the third part of your book is titled "Movie Star Sex Symbol," and these cover the years nineteen sixty three to uh, 1970, and so this takes us up to just before she wins her first Academy uh, Award for Clute. So ahead of that is a different sort of stardom and greatness. Well, that's because she was with Roger Vadim, her first husband, who was an irresistibly seductive man, and also quite an interesting uh, film director. You know, he discovered Brigitte Bardot. He was married to her, and he had a relationship with Catherine Deneuve, and Annette Stroyberg was his second wife, I guess. Uh, But uh, Vadim was, was really her her second mentor, if you will, the man who, who really began shaping her as a, as a star, really. I mean, he saw that she was a, a, a genuine star, uh, that she always had been a star, but he wanted to bring out uh, a lot of, of things in her personality, a lot of details in her personality, which, which um, hadn't been brought out. Mm. Uh, he was able to do this in the in the movies they made together she's just oh she's so beautiful in these movies mm. i i remember something uh, in the book where he is quoted as saying uh, I was going to take the best from life. It's pleasures, the mm. sea, nature, sports, Ferraris, friends and pals, art, nights of intoxication, the beauty of women, insolence, and nose-thumbing at society. Mm-hmm. We can sense in that philosophy of life which he embraced probably the way in which that would have been intoxicating to someone like Jane Fonda as well. Well, of course, because it was the exact opposite uh, from the way she'd been raised by her by her very very strict father, who was very conservative. Uh, I mean, he seemed to be conservative; he really wasn't, but uh, in his own life. Um, but uh, oh yeah, I mean, Vadim's lifestyle was exotic and exciting and fun, and uh, and she just got totally involved in it and fell madly in love with him. What is your favorite Jane Fonda performance from this period? Oh, I think this movie, uh, the movie that they, it's called The Game is Over in English. In French, it's called La Curée. And it's about a very young woman in, uh, married to an older man who falls in love with his son and sort of experiences a, an erotic kind of awakening. Um, the, the story doesn't make much sense, but it is the most beautiful movie to watch visually and Jane is at her most most gorgeous and Vadim felt that that he at that point had released her her quirky powerful spirit you know he he released her stubbornness for flirtations or the way she was both spoiled and moody and sometimes even mean but kind of luxuriating in the, in in the celebrity that was making her both imperious and and, and graceful. All, all these things were, you know, were melded into this performance. She's ravishing in this movie, absolutely mm. ravishing. And it's a totally nobody knows this movie here in the United States, but in Europe, it's considered a, a classic. It is towards the end of this period, in about 1970, that Jane begins uh, her first uh, begins first to dip her toe into the world of political activism, right. uh, somewhat to the dismay of her first husband, uh, from whom she is uh, very soon thereafter separated. Tell us about uh, uh, this controversial period in, in her life, uh, which 
polarizes people to this very day. Yeah, well, she began to be aware of the Vietnam War uh, and the terrible terribleness of the Vietnam War when she was pregnant and lying in bed watching French television, and she saw the bombing in Cambodia. She saw the bombings of schools and churches and, and, and the thousands of kids being maimed, and, and then she started hearing about the marches in the United States or seeing them on television. And Simone Signore brought her to some anti-war rallies in Paris, and she met some deserters, American deserters, who were hiding out in Alexander Calder's studio, oddly enough. Uh, she talked to them about the war, and she started hearing about these terrible atrocities that were being committed, like My Lie. She heard about My Lie, uh, you know, Cali, and, and the, I guess a group of soldiers destroyed an entire village somewhere in, in Vietnam. Anyway, she began to hear about what was going on, and she, Vadim knew about this, uh, but he was not interested. He was much more interested in, in living a wonderful, you know, sort of uh, carefree life. And uh, she decided that maybe this life was not what she wanted anymore. She wanted to take things more seriously. She felt he didn't take her seriously, nor did he take what was happening to the world seriously. And that's when she started drawing away from him and uh, getting involved uh, politically. Hmm. First in, in Paris, and then when they moved back to, to the United States, uh, while she was making They Shoot Horses, don't they? It co coincided with her first serious role. Uh, she became uh, involved with the anti-war movement. Some of that goes well. Of course, some of it she comes to regret, at least uh, that chapter in which she comes to be known as Hanoi Jane. Uh, I mean, she certainly does not regret everything about that that chapter of her, her activism, and yet there are certain things which occurred, certain things she allowed to happen or uh, scenes she allowed to be shot of, of herself which conveyed not exactly the message she intended. Uh, how does she come to terms with this particular chapter of, of, of her life? You mean now? How does she yes. come to terms with it? Well, well um, she went to North Vietnam to uh, To make a movie about the bombing of the dikes because she she felt America should hear about what was going on. I mean, everybody, a lot of the act activists knew about this, but uh, the country at large was was not aware of what we were doing in in, in Vietnam. And uh, she went there with that purpose. Yes, I think she was used by the North Vietnamese uh, for publicity purposes because she was a very famous actress. Uh, sort of seemed as if she was supporting them in the war, but. She wasn't. But in any event, uh, she became more and more uh, obsessed with telling the world what was happening in North Vietnam, in Hanoi, with the bombings. And she got on the radio and she talked, uh, she directed her speeches, her harangues to the pilots. But but uh, what she said was she never told the pilots not to bomb. She just said, think about what you're doing. Think about what you're destroying. It's not right. It's wrong. Uh, again, you know, she was very reckless and maybe too idealistic, and she didn't think things through. And she certainly didn't think things through when she kind of perched on this anti-aircraft gun, uh, which she was she was photographed on this gun, uh, and this gave her the nickname of, of Hanoi Jane because it seemed as if she was a traitor that she wasn't a patriot, uh, and that's when she really began polarizing the country with this, this very image of her sitting on the gun, which, of course, she does regret. She regrets sitting on the gun, but she does not regret going to North Vietnam and talking, speaking out against the war. 
she felt like it was uh, an extraordinarily important story that had not really been told to the American public. She, oh, absolutely. I mean, she she talked about the the, the 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 human cost of the Indochina War under President Nixon, six million victims. Uh, she she talked about it constantly, all over the country, all over the world, actually. Uh, but but a lot of people didn't like that, particularly mm. a, a lot of the Vietnam vets. Mm. Uh, yet another consequence of this uh, aggressive activism in which she uh, participates is the man she ma- meets and ultimately marries. Oh, Tom Hayden, you mean? Yes. Tom Hayden, who was a political radical, uh, who was, was very, very important in the anti-war movement. Uh, and, and she she absolutely uh, adored him. and She wanted him in her life because uh, she felt that he could inspire her and teach her and lead her uh, and and she she had it I, I didn't want him to be afraid of me i mean many men were afraid of her of her power uh which she i don't know whether she ever ever really has realized how powerful she is but in any event she adored him and they did have this very complicated but extremely interesting marriage uh where they worked together uh they, they created a grassroots organization the campaign for economic democracy they spoke out all over the country about the environment uh one of their top priorities was lobbying against the building of more nuclear plants i mean it was an amazing kind of uh team that they they created uh between themselves uh he wanted very much to run for for, for, for president, he first ran for state senate, and he did win, thanks in part to Jane fighting for him and raising millions of dollars. Uh, she never stopped working for him. She was the most uh, remarkable kind of uh, fundraiser and uh, promoter of, of Tom Hayden. And he became very famous because of her. But finally, he resented this. He resented her fame. He resented the fact that she could raise money very easily. That her book sold in the millions, and his didn't sell more than a couple of thousand copies. It mm. was a, it was, a, it was a competitive relationship. Finally, you know. Absolutely, it. I think when people look at the table of contents of your book, they may be surprised to see political activist nineteen seventy to nineteen eighty eight, and might not. <laughs> might not realize that her activism stretched long past the Vietnam conflict. Oh, absolutely. Well, what, what I was saying was that after she, you know, she sort of pulled back. She she knew that she couldn't be as radical and really didn't want to be while she was married to Hayden because he wouldn't have won the election if she'd been as radical as she had been, you know, supporting the Black Panthers, for example. She pulled back and she became more moderate and talked about rent control and, uh, you know, uh, the rights of single mothers, uh, and oddly enough, because she did sort of change her image in that way. And by the way, that she was also making her most some of her greatest movies at that time, like Coming Home and China Syndrome and Nine to Five. She became one of the most popular women in in the world, along with uh, I think with uh, uh, Indira Gandhi <laughs> hmm. and Mother Teresa. I think those are the three most uh, popular, famous admired women in the world in the, by the 80s, the 1980s. Right. And, of course, Jane Fonda is doing extraordinarily powerful work in this period, including Coming Home 
and the China syndrome. That's right. Yeah. Shift, shifting gears with nine to five. I mean, mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. some of her most memorable work is in this in this period. And they also kind of you know charted her political evolution. Uh, you know, because she was very concerned with the issues in each one of those films: the Vietnam vets, uh, the China syndrome, was the nuclear power uh, fighting uh, against having too much nuclear power. Uh, nine to five. You know, the secretaries turned rebels, getting more independence and rights for secretaries for women. It was it was about women. I mean, she was very very involved with women's causes. Absolutely, and then of course there comes this extraordinary exercise video. I mean, who would have saw that coming? In a sense, well, I mean that too. In a way, it's sort of the culmination of Jane as exercise guru is really almost as close as you can get to the authentic Jane Fonda because it, it's really when you think about it, it's one of her most well, it is perhaps her most remarkable act of self recreation because you know she believes in fitness there is freedom and. Millions of women agreed with her. I mean, millions of women suddenly started exercising, taking care of their bodies, getting to know their bodies, and and in in the workout tapes and books, uh, they you know she they were sold in the millions. She, I think I think the workout tape sold 16 million. The first DVD, that's the, the highest of of any DVD, and and Jane was very proud that that she had had done this. Uh, but the care and nurturing of her body has always been uh, very central hmm. to her. Uh, it's really to the core of her being from the time she was 20 years old. I used to see her. She would go to take ballet classes every day. She would take a ballet class even like at 4 in the morning if she was shooting a film. She always wanted a perfect body. Hmm. And uh, she has a perfect body today. <laughs> Yes, she does. No, really. It. it I'm not arguing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, I'm, it's been a, it's been at a price. I mean, she was bulimic and she anorexic, and now she has osteoporosis, but she's still there and she's going strong. <laughs> so, what does she make of her life now, uh, and and where does she see herself going from here? I think she is seeing herself still changing. Uh, charting new waters she's written uh, you know this other book she's going to write two more books she's going to make more movies she she never stops she is always changing and searching um she's a questing spirit i mean she she never stops you know she just goes on uh but i think she's happier than she's ever been she's more independent she's you know she has a another boyfriend but uh or man or whatever you want to call him uh man friend um but but she is uh she's more uh, at peace with herself in her in her own skin so to speak she really is i think mm. and she's also very very close to her family that now now she's a matriarch now she's a grandmother you know she takes care of even ted turner's kids and their children and uh, <laughs> I was, a huge brood <laughs> uh, yeah i was just going to say that's that's actually on the one hand she doesn't like to dwell on the past and on the other hand jane fonda is remarkably comfortable with much of her past yeah, i mean with ex-husbands she, yeah, and so that's on and right. she, they're all her friends you know they everybody sees everybody else there's a constant family reunions and gatherings and taking trips together and and of course you know she's got all the money in the world she can do every anything she wants uh, i think that makes it very nice you know i really do but she deserves it 
Mm. After all the work she's done, right? Absolutely. The book, again, is called Jane Fonda, The Private Life of a Public Woman. The book is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt, uh, and a lengthy book uh, filled with marvelous photographs as well that help us chart the course of this remarkable woman. The author, Patricia Bosworth, I thank you so much for joining me today on The Morning Show to talk about your fascinating book. Well, what a great interview. Thank you so much for asking me such wonderful questions. I really enjoyed myself. Thank you.